Hello, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So in this episode, I'll be looking at chapters 2 and 3 of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. So if you're just joining me, you can go back and listen to my previous episode. And hopefully, if you enjoy this, you can go back and listen to this entire series I am doing on H.P. Lovecraft, uh, where I'll be looking at all of his works uh, in you know, roughly chronological order. Um, looking at his letters, looking at some of his other writings, some of his poetry, on and on. So we're doing a thorough re read through of Lovecraft's work in this uh, series. So, um, anyways, uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth is is one of my favorite of Lovecraft's later stories. I think it's actually one of the most significant for his uh, overall theory, not just on race. That's what it's mostly known for, but also working class issues. Uh, trade and the sea that's really a strong part of the story as well I think it kind of it kind of set it aside uh, the case of Charles Dexter Warden being one of the more important of, of Lovecraft stories I, I rather prefer uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward but um, Shadow Over Innsmouth does um, stand out just because of its of its importance and its uh, um, in these issues uh, that this podcast is looking at anyways. Other readers of Lovecraft may uh, find this story more forgettable or less uh, something that could be sacrificed in a read-through, but I don't think so. I think, uh, for me, this one has to kind of take a center place in, um, in the study. So anyways, uh, the whole first chapter of this story takes place actually in Newburyport, uh, where our narrator, uh, who is never really named in the story, um, is, uh, you know, touring New England, um, just doing walking tours. Very, very much like Lovecraft would do a lot, do these various walking tours. Our narrator is doing that here. And he's, uh, you know, he hears about this town of Innsmouth and he wants to visit. He talks to a, uh, a ticket taker or, t or ticket seller in the, I think it's the train station. And he says, well, only a bus gets you there. And he tells some of the history of the town and why the people of Arkham don't, don't like him. I also think we get our first sort of description of the Innsmouth look here, which is um, kind of a, you know, just uh, the overall physical features of the people of Innsmouth, something that they tend to have in common and something that kind of creeps that, um, people out. But there's other things about the town that creep people out. Um, now, one interesting thing about Innsmouth is it's very much a 19th century town, even though it was founded in the 17th century. It, it gets much more of an industrial feel. Its major industry is gold smelting. And of course, the 19th century was a, an age of the gold standard. And I played around a little bit with the idea of the Great Depression, uh, you know, maybe influencing some of the, the story a little bit. But we do have a town that's economically depressed and marginalized uh, after having a heyday of trade and industry. In this sense, it makes it very much a post-industrial town. And I think that's another thing that makes the story quite relevant to readers today. Um, so after hearing from the ticket taker, he goes and talks, to, he goes, uh, does his own research and finally is brought to a, like a museum, a private collection where they have some Innsmouth artifacts, including a tiara. And he becomes very fascinated with this tiara um, and thinks about why Innsmouth makes this particular type of jewelry. Um, he also learns about the main religion in Innsmouth, the esoteric order of Dagon. So in chapters two and three of this story, we get um, 
essentially we get three different accounts or three different perspectives on Innsmouth. We get one from a, an Arkham resident who kind of works there part time. He's like a, a grocery stock boy uh, person and, and he doesn't really think much of the town. He kind of thinks it's an odd place, but he does it for the money. Uh, he's, he's an outsider to the town. Then we get uh, this guy, Zadok Allen, who's a drunkard and very old. He's like 90 years old. And he kind of knows the town's history, but he doesn't want to talk about it. So the only way he's able to communicate this is after getting drunk. And that's what the narrator does, gets him drunk. And then he goes on for a very, very long story. It actually takes up all of chapter three is this uh, narrative by Zadok Allen. And he gets into all the details of the religion. And really, we start to see the horror underneath uh, this town of Innsmouth. And a third point of view we shouldn't forget. And, and notice in chapter one, we got a, the account of the ticket taker. So actually, the first two thirds of the story really are just uh, different people giving different perspectives on Innsmouth. Um, but the third, the third perspective we get here, I guess it'd be the fourth overall, maybe even the fifth, if you include the uh, Miss Anna Tilden, who is the curator of this little museum that had these Innsmouth artifacts. But th that'd be the narrator himself. Who, of course, we learned by the end of the story, he has his own relationship with, with Innsmouth. And it's also a, a holder of the Innsmouth look. Um, tied to it through his genealogy and heredity. Um, but he does a walking tour. And we don't get that as much as you might suspect. As much in, in Lovecraft's works. Considering how much Lovecraft loved to do this. He would do these walking tours of Providence all the time. We know this from his letters. And he would travel and go to places like uh, Quebec. He went to St. Augustine. He went to Miami and he went to Richmond. And um, he was traveling a lot, actually, in this period of his life, the late 20s, early 30s. And of course, when he lived in New York, he did walking tours. I think the closest we might get to a story that did this would be uh, uh, He, perhaps. He, which is uh, based, kind of built around a walking tour of Greenwich Village. Uh, and, you know, for Lovecraft, the walking tours are time travel. That's what we see in He He. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit what we see here, too. But that's an important part of the story is just this walking tour of Innsmouth. And we actually have the geography of the town laid out. Um, if you have the Klinger Anthology, which I do recommend if you want to study these stories carefully, uh, a lot of the annotations are very useful. We actually have here Lovecraft's own, own sketch of the town of Innsmouth and then a more modern artist's uh, kind of adaptation of that into a, a crisper map. But um, So we have a pretty good idea of at least what downtown Innsmouth looks like. Uh, and that becomes somewhat important in the final part of the tale. So anyways, that's kind of the introduction um, here. So as chapter two opens up, he gets... You know, he's still in Newburyport. He gets up early because he's going to take the 10 o'clock bus, the 10 in the morning bus. There's two, comes to Newburyport twice. And it's like a Newburyport to Innsmouth to Arkham route. And then it comes back. And it, and it, 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 does, it, it does this route twice a day. And most of the people who are on this bus are Innsmouth folk who have to go to Arkham or, or wherever for whatever reason. Um, but he gets on. So he's one of the few non Innsmouth residents who, who uses this, this um, bus. Now, the bus driver is a man named Joe Sargent, and he was introduced just by name in Chapter 1. But we find out here he also has uh, a bit of the Innsmouth look. 
quote, his age was perhaps 35, but the odd deep cresses on the sides of his neck made him seem older when one did not study his dull expressionless face. He had a narrow head, bulging watery blue eyes that never seemed to wink, a flat nose, a receding forehead and chin, a singularly undeveloped ears, a long thick lip and coarse parched grayish cheeks seemed almost beardless except for, in some sparse, for some sparse yellow hairs that strangled and curled in irregular patches and in places the surface seemed queerly irregular, as if peeling from some cutaneous disease. His hands were large and heavily veined, and he had a very unusual grayish-blue tinge. The fingers were strikingly short in proportion to the rest of the structure, and he seemed to have a tendency to curl closely into the huge palm. As he walked toward the bus, I observed this peculiarly shambling gait and saw that his feet were inordinately immense. The more I studied him, the more I wondered how you could buy shoes to fit them." Um, so he's deep in the Innsmouth look. Um, it's a transition that people go through as they convert to deep ones, but uh, and there's actually a generational uh, transition as well. Um, but you know he's got it bad. Um, now races. This story is often criticized as being quite racist, dealing with it does with seem with miscegenation, uh, race mixing, and things like that. But you know Lovecraft writes here that this isn't a really this doesn't associate with any race right maybe it's just a, a mongrelization it's like a kind of how you saw tri-racial isolates but he's dealt with those before in other stories like beyond the wall of sleep and he doesn't really do that here he specifically says quote his oddities certainly did not look asiatic polynesian live and levantine or negroid yet i could see why people found him alien i myself would have thought of biological degeneration rather than alienage so he's actually the narrator here is saying he's not it's not a racial thing. It's actually more of a, of a evolutionary throwback in a way. Um, so anyways, um, we get another travel. That's, that's interesting here. These three stories we've been looking at, Whisper in Darkness, Mountains of Madness, and uh, Shadow of Rainswell, all have this travel, this kind of entering into a new place. But in the first two stories, it's much more going to some kind of primordial um, time almost. Uh, and that's not really the feeling we get here. We just get um, actually kind of the feeling of ecological devastation in a way um, and kind of just the dreariness and dirtiness. It's, it's very much, this, you get the sense of this post-industrial kind of Rust Belt town. That's, that's kind of the feeling I often get. Now, maybe this is just, maybe this is a wrong assumption. Maybe I'm putting too much of my own kind of perspectives on it, but that's, that's the feel I get. It's kind of like this foggy, dreary, uh, declining town, right? It's like those when you have those towns that once had thousands of people that now just have a few hundred and a lot of sh things are boarded up and there's no one on the street. It's kind of like that. It's not really, uh, it's not like any other place we've seen in, in, in Lovecraft's geography. And technically we have been to Innsmouth before in, uh, our, when we looked at uh, the fungi from Yugoth, but that was just a couple of vignettes in a, in a, in a series of poems. Um, so anyways, uh, what do we have here? Yeah, crumbling buildings, wormy decay. Um, there is some Georgian ge uh, uh, architecture here, but that's not the main f sentiment. It's not the main kind of description we get of the town. Instead, we get more of this like brick this red brick is more like maybe Red Hook in this way. In fact, I think the comparisons between Red Hook and this story are 
apt because in both you have this kind of foreign tradition coming in from abroad. But, uh, you know, it's done in a very different way in this story. But they, you know, it's both, maybe their, the geography of the town is, is similar, or the way they look is similar. But of course, while Red Hook is thriving and, and Innsmouth is dying, um, he also, we also get, as he enters into the town, more people that seem to have this Innsmouth look, and he seems to observe them. Um, the other thing is it's really smelly. It's, of course, the other big industry besides gold smelting is fishing, um, and you get this kind of fishy smell everywhere. It's basically three industries, right? It's fish, it's bootleg liquor, and it's gold smelting. That's really what drives this, this town. Um, so the first place he goes in this town and visits, um, because he is an antiquarian, he's interested in antiquarian pursuits, the first place he sort of he, the first place he goes to really visit is the esoteric order of Dagon, this church, which it was actually a repurposed church. Um, so they put up this new sign that's called the Esoteric Order of Dagon. This is the religion of the people of Innsmouth. Uh, now he's not alone. There's a pastor there, like the, the priest of Dagon, or the order. He's got his own kind of robes of the Order of Dagon. So this is really a, like a cultist. Right, and, and we've sort of seen some of this in Whisper and Darkness with that meeting in the woods with the humans and the Migo. I guess those humans are cultists in a way. I, I just mentioned cultists because it's such a part of like the Lovecraft lore and mythology. And of course you get them in the Call of Cthulhu, but there's not much. The, the cultists aren't very common. They don't show up a lot. Um, but here is maybe where we get this imagery of like the, the robed priests um, as central to a, to a cult. Um, but anyways, more or less, we get just the feeling of the sparseness of this. Um, he travels around, he sees other sites, he sees the hotel, he'll be staying at the Gilman Hotel. Uh, he, sees, uh, uh, he sees the Marsh Refining Company, um, which is the main industry there. There's also just normal buildings, like there's like a grocery store, and things like that. And, and that's where we run into this grocer boy who's from Arkham. Quote, um, he seemed exceptionally eager to talk, and I soon gathered that he did not like the place, its fishy smell, or its furtive people. A word with any outsider was a relief to him. He hailed from Arkham, boarded with a family who came from Ipswich, and went back home whenever he got a moment off. His family did not like him to work in Innsmouth, but the chain had transferred him there, and they did not wish to give up his job. End quote. So it's still somewhat tied. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's important enough for this grocery chain to, to, have, to maintain its store in Innsmouth and, and even to send workers there but um, by and large the town is, is declining and, and being abandoned by the outsiders and he's a he's an exception uh, and he doesn't say too much he doesn't seem to hang out much with the Innsmouth people so he's got uh, he doesn't he's not able to add too much to it um, but he does say that the people of Innsmouth are really furtive are very they're not seen very often. He compares them at one point to like living like in burrows, like animals underground. Uh, but they fish and they drink. That's what they do. Quote, perhaps judging from the quantities of bootleg liquor they consumed, they lay for most of the daylight hours in an alcoholic stupor. They seem sullenly blanded together in some sort of fellowship and understanding, despising the world as if they had access to other and preferable spheres of entity. Their appearance, especially those staring unwinking eyes, which never, which one never saw shut, was certainly shocking enough, and their voices were disgusting. It was awful to hear them, 
chanting in their churches at night, and especially during their main festivals or revivals, which felt twice a year, April 30th and October 31st. Now that itself is interesting because these are more, uh, these aren't standard Christian holidays, right? You have All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, and uh, Walpurgisnacht, uh, which I think this comes up again. This is maybe the holiday that plays a major role in Dreams of the Witch House. There's a pagan holiday that's kind of a, a survival. It's, it's kind of this other vernacular mythology and this vernacular tradition surviving into the modern age, which is such an important theme for, for Lovecraft. Other things the voice says that they do is like they do these swimming races out to Devil's Reef. This Devil's Reef is an important like, gathering place for the people of Innsmouth it seems, and they sort of swim out there, and, and he, he sees it as kind of a race. I'm not sure, maybe it's just the gathering, but he sees it as uh, a race. He also mentions there's not many old people, and, and and the reason for this is as they reach a certain age, they they, they mutate into, into deep ones, into these monsters, um, which are immortal, right? So it's you know, it's it's worthwhile, I guess, for, for the people. In fact, it's kind of like, it, actually, you're reminded of Call of Cthulhu, where Castro, is at, when he's asked, why are you doing this? Why are you a member of this cult? And he says, well, we're promised something that these other traditions can't really offer us, which is earthly freedom and earthly like immortality, uh, things like that. So it's, it's the same idea that something is being promised by these traditions that Christianity or just the modern life itself can't really promise to us. So it's a really interesting uh, account of the story, but it's it's a more aloof one. The the grocery boy is a bit aloof. He just gets this kind of impression of the town, and he doesn't like it, and he doesn't spend much time there. He goes to work, he comes home, is the the way it seems. He doesn't really have any friends there. Um, so uh, we get that. Um, he was able to get some like rumors about the about Innsmouth, particularly the Marsh family. The Marsh, uh, Oded, Captain Oded Marsh is like in some sense the modern founder of Innsmouth, the, the founder of this Innsmouth that we get in the story. The real founder was earlier than that, but he's the one who brought this these traditions in from the South Pacific, right? And of course, reread Dagon. It's Lovecraft essentially telling you to reread Dagon. It's not crucial, but there seems to be some relationship between. Lovecraft wants there to be a relationship between that story and this this one in this esoteric order of Dagon. But it seems some of the rumors really center around this Marsh's daughter. Quote, one of, one of the Marsh daughters was a repellent reptilian-looking woman who wore an excess of weird jewelry, clearly of the same exotic tradition as that to which the strange tiara belonged. My informant had noticed it many times and had heard it spoken as of coming from some secret horde, either of pirate or of demons. The clergyman or priest or whatever they were called nowadays always wore this kind of ornament as a headdress, but one seldom caught glimpses of them. Other specimens of youth had not seen, though many were rumored to exist around Innsmouth. The marshes together with the other three gently bred families in the town, the Waits, the Gilmans, and the Elliots, were all very retiring. Um, so we get a little bit about the elite of Innsmouth. So after this, we get... Uh, our narrator's kind of walking tour and we get our kind of some of the geography of the town. So he goes south, I guess. Or is it, let me, let me double check these maps. 
Um, well, anyways, no, he, st- he starts out on the south side. So, like, the downtown is on the south side of this river, the Minuxit River, which is made of river. Uh, very New England sounding, of course. But he's, he starts on the south. That's where, like, the downtown is. But the residential area is on the north. So he crosses this bridge, and eventually he... I think he crosses, like, a, an old rickety kind of uh, bridge later on where he... When he's kind of getting into, like, the docks and the, the port part of town, like the, the, the waterfront area era. But the, the overall feel of it is there's... Um, it's just really a strange place, and it's got this feeling of evil and abnormality. Um, you know, there's no animals, there's no dogs or cats, even though it's it's kind of a deserted place. The windows are mostly shuttered, largely because there's not that many people there. Uh, there's a lot of rundown streets that are not paved or not really well maintained. The whole thing is not just a declining town, but also has this feeling of, of you know eeriness. If you've ever been in like a city street at night. Uh, maybe in a kind of a sketchy neighborhood, you know, there's not many people there. You can kind of imagine maybe partially what he's feeling here. But, you know, eventually he, he gets to, he meets this guy, Zadok Allen, uh, who is the person he's kind of seeking out because he wants to get the stories from this old timer. Uh, I think it was actually the boy who kind of leads him to Zadok Allen, the, the grocery boy. Um, so anyways, that's... There's a lot of interesting stuff here in the geography. So when you read this, it's, it's worthwhile to kind of lo- look at the map of Innsmouth or download a map of Innsmouth and, and kind of follow along the walking tour that he goes on. It's it's a great moment that's that you can imagine Lovecraft, you know, was thinking about while doing his own walking tours of, of Providence or whatever. And it's worth to note that in after he returns to Providence after his New York adventure, H.P. Lovecraft commented on how there were these kind of sketchy neighborhoods in Providence that he never noticed before. And he kind of started to explore them and discover them. And, and he writes about these in his letters. But there's this idea that even Providence is starting to decay a little bit. And you can imagine he's extending some of that feel to the whole, to make Innsmouth. You know, I don't quite sure what all his models for Innsmouth were. Um, but... But I think some of this comes from his own walking tours of, of New England port cities that he, you know, these areas he was so fascinated with. All right, chapter three is Zadok Allen's story. It's just, you know, it's like 15 pages. It's a long chapter, um, but basically it centers around Zadok Allen's story. And he's he's drunk and he's got this kind of strong regional accent, and and you know, Lovecraft has a lot of fun with this character and his his accent his way of talking and his overall drunkenness um but basically our narrator's plan is to to liquor him up and get him talking and that's what happens and it you know it starts out saying like hey i want to talk to you but he ends up sharing like some of this liquor with him and this get opens his you know in vino veritas i guess and, uh, after drinking he starts to reveal what he knows about the town and he knows a whole lot uh and this is really a key feature of the story um and it just goes from being weird to being really horrific and supernatural uh at least if we take zadok allen's story uh, earnestly so the story that uh zadok gives is is pretty sprawling but it is crucial to to the story um, in fact, it's for my for my money. It's all you need for really the story to work. The last two chapters, as we'll see in the next episode, is 
you know, there are some important re revelations about the personal uh, history of our of our narrator. But as for describing the city of Innsmouth itself, um, this is the the highlight, right, of the story. But it's very sprawling and it's not continuous. It's not a very systematic story. He's he's drunk, right? So he's just kind of spiffing on whatever comes to his mind. Um, but it's, it's kind of veers between history, uh, both the history of the Marsh family and his own personal history and the history of the town, and uh, religion and, and kind of the, the religious aspects of it. Um, and then this kind of leads him as... It becomes more and more about the religion of the town. This leads to Alan, Alan, Zadok, Alan becoming increasingly fearful and terrified and paranoid. And by the end of the story, he's kind of uh, driven himself a bit mad by his own retelling of the story. Um, so, just some of the things that he uh, reveals. Uh, one is one. It's very clear that whatever change happened to Innsmouth was brought in by this Captain Obed Marsh uh, from the Pacific Islands, right? We, we've known he was a merchant of the Pacific Islands. We know he kind of was traveling back and forth, but that he brought something specifically um, back with him, particularly rituals and beliefs, is, is really made clear, right? And this is not, you know, this is set, what, 1927, I think the story is set. Um, and so Obed Marsh is active like during the War of 1812. So this is kind of in Zadok Allen's like lifetime, essentially. Um, we're close to it, right? He's, he's experienced a lot of the changes in Innsmouth while he's still quite young. So some of these events predate his life, but not by much, right? And when you're reading it from, the, from our standpoint, it seems like it's ancient history. But for someone like Zadok Allen, you know, it's 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 in memory. So a lot of this stuff is drawn from his own experiences. Um, but certainly what he brings in, it seems to be religious. Quote, never was nobody like Captain Obed, old limo Satan. He, he I can mind him a telling about foreign parts and calling all the folk stupid for going to Christian meetings and bearing their burdens meek and lowly. Says they ought to get better gods like some of the folks in the Inges. Gods as whom bring them good fishing in return for their sacrifices and really answer folks' prayers. Um, so maybe he, you know, experienced something. Maybe he ran into, you know, those cults of Dagon. We've seen Pacific Islanders before in these stories. We've seen like the, the quote-unquote Kanakas who worship the Cthulhu cult. And we're driven mad by that. Uh, by Cthulhu's rising in the Call of Cthulhu. We've seen, uh, where else do we see those? It's slipping my mind. Oh, just in Dagon itself. In Dagon, the Pacific becomes, I think there's a few other points where Pacific Islanders emerge in the story. Um, and, you know, he mentions like some of the things he discovered there. Told about an island east of Othahite, where there was a lot of stone ruins, probably older older than anybody knew anything about. Kind of them like um, Pompeii in the Panapei in the Carolines, but with the carvings of faces that look like big statues on Easter Island, end quote. So it's not the statues of Easter Island, but he says it's kind of like that, right? And that, of course, reminds us of the statues in Dagon. That wasn't on an island, no. That was like a raised, freshly raised 
up. Well, I guess it was an island, but it was like freshly raised, right? There was this sense that it just came out of through a volcano eruption or something. It came back up above the surface. And that happens in 1916, 1917, so a century after these events. Um, maybe at that time it was above ground. Who knows? Um, now, some of these uh, images and the jewelry and, you know, has this image that appears to be like the Innsmouth look. And uh, this is some of the stuff that Obed, Obed, Obed brings back. Um, so that's the key, just uh, revelation here, is that he didn't just bring back this like foreign wife. He brought back uh, these foreign traditions in a quite developed foreign tradition with, with the material culture, with a whole set of beliefs. And key to this belief is kind of this uh, promise in this world of something, not a, a promise later, right? There's this direct kind of criticism of Christianity for making people meek, asking people to wait till they're dying to have their pie in the sky. But Obed Marsh says, no, you're going to get something real in this world, right? Through this religion, right? Even if it's just fish, right? At least it's something that we can do uh, here. Um, now, they also do sacrifices, we're told. Uh, this is what uh, Alan says. It seems these Kanakis were sacrificing heaps of their young men and maidens to some kind of god things that lived under the sea and getting all kinds of favor in return. They met the things on the little islet with queer ruins, in quote. So they're getting stuff, right, that's uh, for their sacrifice, for their belief, for their worship. And the idea of them going to a a special place, a little in islet to worship, it's kind of like Devil's Reef, right? In Innsmouth, it becomes the Devil's Reef. Reef is the place that people's goes. But key to this is this human sacrifice. Um, now, rumors have it that part of what's involved here is, is some kind of mating with fish which is kind of the, the root origin of the, of the Innsmouth look, right? When it comes to mating with them toad-looking fishies, the Kanakis kind of balked, but finally they learned some, something that's put a new face on the matter. Seems that human folks have got a kind of relation to such water beasts, that everything alive come out of the water once only needs a little change to go back again, end quote. So it's kind of a return to the sea. Right? So we come from the sea and we can return to it by mating, by breeding with these um, fish things. But what we get out of this is this immortality. Right? So Zadok Allen's kind of laying it all out in his, his account here. Um, now, oh, it's so wonderful. I mean, it's so great, this passage. Not just the playful use of language that Lovecraft engages in, but the, the details about this and you know, and he's living. And then when you think about poor Zadok Allen, he's a drunk, right? But he's, you can tell why it's like, he's living with this knowledge his whole life and he can't escape this town. And, you know, he's horrified every moment of the day, right? Drinking is the only thing that can keep him sort of sane. It, it's not clear why the regular people drink. It's just it's part of their culture. They don't seem to have that much to do besides fish and drink, but um, Zadok Allen is drinking just to kind of remain sane, right? And to keep this kind of knowledge suppressed. But when pulled on by this narrator, he, he starts to give everything up, you know. Really key to all this, though, 
to this religion is this rejection, this very active rejection of Christianity, which is, of course, symbolized in the esoteric order of Dagon, where they literally like take a church and repurpose it into their, into their religion. Um, now, he, throughout this conversation, our narrator keeps giving Zadok the, the bottle to keep him liquored up. Um, some wonderful stuff here about just even the gods, right? Uh, that they seem to worship. It seems to be very, it seems to be quite heterodox faith, actually. Um, but they run the, they ran the Congregationalist Parson out of town, and the Methodist feller quit. Never did see resolved Babcock, the Baptist Parson, again. Wrath of Jehovah. So the, Christ, the Christians were driven out of town explicitly. Um, I was a little mighty critter, but I heard what I heard and I seen what I seen. Dagon and Astroteth, Belial and Beelzebub, Golden Calf and Idols of Canaan and the Philistines, Babylonish abominations. Quote. So these gods, it's quite diverse uh, what they're worshiping, but it's these kind of tied to Babylon. These are Babylonian gods. And you know, like Dagon was a Babylonian god that Lovecraft repurposed for his Pacific story. And I talked about that way back in an early episode of this podcast, how the suggestion there is this, kind of these tendrils of knowledge that go into prehistory and connect the Pacific with ancient Babylon or, or as in Juan Romero connecting the Hindu world with pre-Columbian America. Um, so what else did he talk about? He, he suggested they're, they're, they visit Devil's Reef to do these rituals. There's strange swimming things that are non-human during these rituals that he's able to observe. Um, and so he gets into all this, and then he kind of shifts back to maybe more standard history of how the town begins to decline. And it really declines with this reformation, if you want to call it a reformation, uh, of beliefs taking place under this leadership of Obadid Marsh. Um, now there's resistance to this. There's even a moment where a lot of the cultists are arrested, but eventually the reformation is fully, fully achieved. Um, he becomes increasingly mad as he tells the story and eventually has to give up telling. He like At the end of the story, he's just screaming and, and ranting. Um, and, and he just, you know, runs away um, from the conversation, terrified himself by telling this whole story. Now, there's one important point here because we learn later, spoiler alert, this is, uh, if you've never read Chet Over Innsmouth, uh, you know, our narrator is tied to this Marsh family uh, genetically. And so he's got the Innsmouth look. And that's why he's treated a certain way in the final chapters of the story. Um, but there's a key point that Zadok Allen makes that connects to that. Quote, in 46, Captain Obadid took a second wife that nobody in the town never sees, but says he didn't want to, but was made to by them as he called in. Had three children by her. Two has disappeared young, but one gals looked like anything anybody else and was educated in Europe. Obed had finally got her married off by a trick to an Arkham feller, as didn't suspect nothing. End quote. So this is our this is the our narrator's ancestor. And so he's like the the child of this second wife. But no this second wife is you know, no one ever sees. So it's implied she's the deep one or seems to me all right I think that's good enough I mean it's be so hard to fully summarize everything going on here but you know 
really what what to make of all this, I guess. Uh, one is the narrative structure here. It's even though it's a consistent narrative by one narrator, not like Call of Cthulhu where it's pieced together by these different stories. Here's one consistent narrator throughout, but we get different points of view on Innsmouth. We get the narrator's point of view through his walking tour. We get the more aloof grocer boy. We get Zadok Allen, who's lived here his whole life. We have the ticket taker, the ticket agent guy in Newburyport, who has a more general outsider's look of it, of the town. So we get these different perspectives, and they all have a bit of the truth to it. They all part, tell part of the story. But Zadok Allen's is the most complete and intimate and, and developed idea, and he's the one who's able to kind of shift the story from just being kind of uncanny to being a true horror story. And he does that by bringing this religious dimension. Right Now, that's been foreshadowed before. We know about the esoteric order of Dagon, but we don't know that they're involved in sacrifice and interbreeding with monsters and and their core belief, which is explicitly hostile to Christianity and embracing these ancient gods from apparently Bab Bab you know, from Babylonia. Babylon, I should say. Um, so the, the way the story comes together, I think, is really well done in the first three chapters. I'm, I'm less fond of chapters four and five. Uh, it is kind of just the action scene. It's a chase for much of it. But anyways, we'll, we'll get to that in the next episode. Um, what's really, I think, important here, and I, I think you've got to set this alongside Call of Cthulhu, and particularly the, the Castro uh, confession in the Call of Cthulhu, because what you have there is this idea that, um, what do I want to say, this, that the world and existing traditions and, and what's known and what's, normal Christianity, good old-fashioned Americanism, whatever it is, even the economy, even the normal economy, doesn't really offer the working class anything, right? And here you have these other traditions offering them something real, right? That's what Castro says, and that seems to be what is driving Obed Marsh's reformation. Is like, we can promise you something right now, better fishing, Prosperity, but ultimately, you know, in eternal life on this world, right? Not just the vague promise of after you die, you, you, you'll, you'll be in heaven. And that's attractive to the underclass, right? This is a bottom-up reformation, too. Obedad Marsh, I guess, is rich, and he's, he brings it in. But the reform seems to come from below, right? And this pushes out the other elite, the, the other elite of the town, and particularly the religious elite. So it's, it's really a story about the working class, in a lot of ways. And I think that's what makes it important. And it's also in these chapters that we get the most intimate look at this, at this, you know, decaying post-industrial hell. Um, but it's common enough in our world. But, uh, you know, in the Great Depression, you know, maybe it was something that Lovecraft was thinking about. I, you know, I want to think of this as a bit of a Great Depression story because of its, if its focus on poverty and, and, you know, like the, the people on the street just drinking and the people kind of without anything to do and, you know, making a living just fishing. It's it's not quite like hobos, right? But you get that sense that this is in the imagination of the 30s, not so much the 20s, right? And so we get this much more gritty working class view of a town, which 
which I don't think he quite did in other stories quite as well, right? He's also a little bit more sympathetic, I think, to to the working class here and to the people who follow this cult because you see why it's attractive to them. You see it through the eyes of people like Zarakan, who, though fearful of it, seems to understand it. And, you know, it's there's a reason for their belief. And I think it's the only other top place time you see this really explicitly, I think, is Castro's uh, confession. It's, it's like never clear in Whisper in Darkness why, why some people were following the Migo. Anything else to say? I don't think so. So that's going to be it for now. Uh, so in the next episode, I hope you'll join me where I'll, I'll finish up my thoughts about the Shadow of Innsmouth, uh, chapters 4 and 5. A lot of it is action, so I won't have to do a, so much detail about it, but um, it is important to talk about the final revelation. Um, and then it'll be it. Then we'll be kind of, after that episode, we'll be uh, moving on uh, from the stories that Lovecraft published under his name to his revisions. Uh, most importantly, the Zelia Bishop, three Zelia Bishop revisions, uh, which includes the great story of the Mound. Uh, those were pretty much all written mostly by him. Um, but then we'll look at a few other revisions published between 1929 and 1930. I think actually The Curse of Diego is 1928. I forgot to do it in the last uh, series. I think I wanted to do the bishops together. That's why I, I did it that way. So we'll do that. There's a few others, and yeah, uh, we'll come back to the stories that the final four stories that Lovecraft published under his name uh, in several weeks after we, uh, I guess, look at the the fourth volume of the Selected Letters and the fifth volume. Which I'll just have one episode on that because I don't have the fifth volume of the Selected Letters. I just have uh, my notes that I took some years ago on it. So we'll just have to make do with that. So, anyways, I guess that'll be it for now. So, uh, thanks as always for listening. Leave me your comments below if you uh, have any for me, or if there's anything I missed, anything you think I misinterpreted, or you know didn't get quite right. Let me know what you think that is, and and I'll certainly respond to you. So, um, I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>